0: Bullshit is everywhere.
1: Bullshit is rampant.
2: Bullshit. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell.
1: Or as my father used to say, stick your ass out the window, run around. I, I used to say, that's... Where'd he <laughs> where to go? He'd say something, I can't do that, it's impossible. I'd say, well, look, nothing's impossible. He goes, really? Stick your ass out the window, run outside and throw stones at it.
0: <laughs> deep. I like yeah. that,
1: deep. I say, well, that's not impossible if I was Elastic Man. If uh, yeah. all I need to do is is, or maybe you know, Mister Fantastic from Fantastic Four, I just need to go up into space, get hit by some gamma radiation storm, right?
0: Standard yeah. stuff.
1: So not right. impossible, unlikely, highly improbable. Yeah. But if comics right. have taught us anything, it's that <laughs> nothing is impossible. <laughs>
0: nuclear bombs are good if you see one go off try to get close but not too close mm. get some superpowers
1: mm. uh but it's got to be a gamma radiation bomb that's oh, the trick okay. we, we don't have a lot of gamma radiation bombs Damn.
0: so scratch what i just said run away run far away <laughs>
1: <laughs> syria bullshit filter syria 1.10 um and uh how are you ray
0: Doing doing great. Hey, I just want to let you know. Obviously, within, within four weeks, I will be in Australia, and I will not pull a Trump um, when there's a group of people who are about to have their photo taken. I'll <laughs> push my way to the front of the line, straight out my tie and jacket, and Jack go. Yeah, I'm the badass around here. You people are nothing. I I will try very hard not to do that. But that is very American of him.
1: That was that's the favorite. My favorite thing I've seen all week. <laughs> For those who haven't seen, it, I'm sure you have by the time you've heard this. But yeah meeting of, I don't know, the G20 or something, Trump pushing the Prime Minister of Montenegro out of the way to get to the front of the pack.
0: And you, he was right in the middle of the Senate, so anyway, it's like, ugh! And you could just see him, like, he's just shocked, like, this man probably hasn't been manhandled like that in decades, and here comes Trump, just, ugh! That's, and you so, know,
1: to classic. me, that is, that is just, like, the the most as you said the most perfectly American it sums up America it does just pushing does. people out of the way to get to the front of the line that's, that's, uh, right. that's how I like to think of it, America
0: the, <laughs> they grooming yourself for the coming photo okay let me get my hair yeah. my tongue democracy
1: bitch I, I'm pretty sure that's what Trump said when he pushed him out of the way it's fucking democracy my, freedom my democracy's
0: bigger than yours leader right. of the free world
1: coming through get out of my fucking way <laughs> All right, let's get on with this shit. Yes,
2: Um, yes, yes.
1: So in um, June of 2000, Hafez al-Assad died. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to some -hmm. some people, others say he just, uh, like L. Ron Hubbard, Mm -hmm. just uh, transitioned to a higher Uh plane of existence. But for the purposes of this show, (laughs) we're going to say he died.
0: (laughs) He changed form. He was
1: succeeded by son number two. Um, his third preference, um, Bashar. Well, his second preference, I guess. We right. went through that in the last episode. There was the struggle between Rafat, his brother, um, and uh, his uh, eldest son, whose name I can't recall. Who was his eldest son?
0: Oh my god! <laughs>
1: Too long ago. Uh,
0: the car, uh, the car wreck
1: man. Yeah, oh, car shame. crash. That's what we'll just call him car crash. His eldest son, car, car-, yeah, car- crash.
0: Car- <laughs> Princess no, died. I, I did what. he went out princess die style I cannot believe I just said that Mm. anyway so uh, before Bashar comes to power his father gives him a special task with a lot of powers putting him in charge of the bureau to receive complaints and appeals from the citizens. And his job was to lead a campaign against corruption, because as we know, even in dictatorships, there can be a little bit of corruption. But really, even this was nothing more than a front. Hafez was a brilliant politician. He said, son, what you do is you use this position and this power that I'm giving you to find out who's going to support you, who's going to give you trouble when I die, and remove them now before you're in power so your transition will be that much smoother. And that's what he did. So not only does he get the love of the people by supposedly trying to clean up corruption, but he removes those who might either try to become president themselves or give him a hard time when he it's time for him to be president. So again, just a brilliant move so that the path has already been, in a lot of ways, smooth for him. To uh, take power.
1: Yeah. Um, so he was 35 years old, Bashar, when Papa died. Papa's son. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, becomes president. He done, then has an election. Uh, Good for him. Yeah, it was a free and fair election. It was a great <laughs> great election. Tremendous election. Um, really, mm-hmm. really, really tremendous. He received 97.29% wow. of the vote. Which beloved sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, beloved. Yeah, yeah. It sounds absolutely, absolutely legit. Was this- checks out. Absolutely I- <laughs> checks out. Totally <laughs> legit.
0: I think this was after the parliament had had rushed uh, into the building and voted real quick to lower the minimum age for presidential candidates hmm. from forty to thirty-four. At least that's what I have. Thirty-four here, not thirty-five. So well, that's, that's because e- either way,
1: it's because he yeah. was thirty-five. He had to be over thirty-four. Oh, gotcha! Yeah, okay. And he's going. Dance. Oh, look!
0: I, I'm 35. Holy shit! Look at that.
1: That's amazing. Moved. What a kowinkadink. Yeah.
0: So, ten days after his father dies, Bashar starts uh, his seven-year term as president. Congratulations! We're all surprised and shocked.
1: And as we mentioned, I think on an earlier episode, he had before his his elder brother died, and he got pulled in um, to the to the. Syrian political training camps, yeah. training uh, Syrian U, Syrian University for political for presidential candidates. Um, there's only one position in that school. Uh, it's very class of one. It's very, you know, you, you know, you've got your elite Ivy League universities. Syrian presidential training university, very, very oh, fucking okay. elite, very, very so, elite.
0: Uh, so where did you rank? What one, number were you in your class?
1: <laughs> one student. One teacher. <laughs> it's usually Daddy, is how you refer daddy. to him. It's uh, right. it's an honorific title. Oh my God. Uh, it's also biologically correct. Um, yes. Yeah, so he'd been in London studying advanced ophthalmology. Not your basic ophthalmology. Not your <laughs> low-level, right. you know, open your eye, let me look in. Like, you go to a GP. I
0: got, I got dust in my eye, You yeah. go
1: to a GP, they have this little camera thing. They go, open your eye, they look in, they go, yep, still there. All right, look to the left. Yep, look to the right. Yep, you can do that. You're not dead yet. Off you go. You're fine. You're fine. Now, he was doing advanced ophthalmology. Um, His wife, Asma Al-Assad, was uh, born and educated and grew up in Britain. Her parents were Syrian. She was raised as a Sunni. Mm-hmm. Uh, graduated from King's College London in 1996 with a bachelor's degree in computer science and French literature. Nice. Very attractive lady, I have to say. Uh, I mm-hmm. watched some videos of her. Very smart, very articulate, very beautiful. Had a career in investment banking with a couple of very big sort of investment banks. Was about to go and do an MBA in investment banking at Harvard University. Um, when she happened to go on a holiday to her aunt's house in Damascus in 2000 and was reacquainted with Bashar, uh, who was a family friend, I guess. Um, Mm. We know his brother, Rifat, was sort of in exile in London. So I don't know what the connections are there. But anyway, they got married uh, December 2000. It was uh, just... Crazy romantic Fell in love Got married His father died They met early in 2000 His father died in June He became president They got married in December Right Wow He was
0: all well, when uh, romance
1: 35 and not married Bashar Which you would think For the son of a president That's maybe slightly unusual Right We'd think he'd have Girls throwing himself Throwing themselves at him Since he was old enough To know what a girl was But uh for whatever reason wasn't married here's a clip of her uh from a relatively recent interview uh, just so you can see what she sounds like talking about uh why she hasn't left syria since the civil war began well you're right on both counts um i first of all i've been here since the beginning and i never thought of being anywhere else um at all Uh, And secondly, yes, uh, I was offered the opportunity to uh, leave Syria or rather to run from Syria. These offers included guarantees of safety and protection for my children and even financial security. It doesn't take a genius to know what these people were really after. It was never about my well-being or my children. It was a deliberate attempt to shatter people's confidence in their president. So as you can see, she sounds like she's a member of the royal family, the British royal family, not the Syrian royal family. Very, very British, very, very upper class accent, very posh. Not bad for a Syrian uh, for you know, yeah. raised of Syrian parents. Obviously, uh, I would suggest Syrian parents that had some money if she was going to King's College London, which I think is a yeah. hoity-toity college.
0: Hoity um, and toity.
1: Yeah. So I don't really know what it, but if they were friends of the Assad's and whatever, then we're assuming they made some money along the way. Um, yeah. Why they weren't part still, of that
0: small knit community?
1: Why they weren't still in Syria? I don't know. But anyway. Um, The fact that she was Western, really, um, a Sunni, highly educated, gorgeous, um, very articulate, uh, along with the fact that Bashar wasn't a military man, and he's an Alawite marrying a Sunni, right? All of these kind of um, added to the hopes that people had when he took over from his father that he would usher through some democratic reforms he'd been living in the west he's married a girl who grew up in the west he's a huge phil collins and elo fan who isn't so so likable in fact you know during the syrian civil war uh this Mm. has been his favorite track this is what he wakes up to this is his alarm clock on his iphone every morning i believe
0: thing so who was who he singing to was he singing like to his wife don't give me a hard time i've got to fight this war was he talking about the allies against him i mean he could have been singing it to all all the above and i think that's a really good anthem that's a good way to start his day good for him that's why he's president
1: yeah yeah i mean when you are president and you're being besieged on all sides in the middle of a brutal civil good. war you, you you need a good song to. <laughs>
0: you need a good pick me up. Yeah, Ugh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably sings in the shower at the top of his voice. Comes out. Woo! Yeah. Let's get this day started. Yeah, yeah so um <laughs> side question yeah side question yeah we, we we said a couple of episodes ago that his father had wanted to be a doctor uh obviously the money wasn't there so he went into the military i'm wondering considering the culture the middle eastern culture if the father just said uh you you're going into you're my whatever second third son whatever i, don't, I can't remember third um you're going in you're going to be a doctor Um, I've got what I need. I've got my successor over here. I've got a whatever. got a brother. i got a backup. You, you're going to be a doctor because I wanted to be a doctor. And so you just wonder how much this guy on his own wanted to be a doctor. Now he's not going to be a doctor. Now he's taking over the family business. I mean, you you just wonder what the truth really is. And and you've got to wonder what's going on in his head. He's like, I didn't sign up for this, but this is the cards that fate has dealt me. I'm just going to do the best I can. At least I got a hot wife. It could be worse.
1: Isn't that what all of us do, Ray? None of us end up doing really what we wanted to do when That's we were true. little. That's true. Um, you know, I didn't end up as David Lee Roth. Uh, that was sort of my ambition. I'm just the David Lee Roth of podcasting now. <laughs> Without the bald spot.
0: <laughs> Good for you. Thanks. Good for
1: you. Um, Thing about Bashar is, too, he. Like, we. I remember when we were talking about Hafez, we were saying how Hafez was very, very different from your Gaddafis or your Mm -hmm. Saddam Husseins. Didn't walk around in a military uniform, although he was, in fact, uh, you know, a military general, uh, Air Air Force Force general. Right. Uh, Wore suits, very quietly spoken. Bashar, very much the same. In fact, he looks and sounds, for all the world, like the world's most boring accountant. Here is a clip from him being interviewed by Barbara Walters, I think from 2012, just after the uh, Civil War had started. Just have a listen to... It's it's a bit too because he speaks very quietly, but just have a listen to this guy and see if he sounds like a brutal dictator to you. You always have people that don't want you to be in that position. That's uh, self-evident. That's normal. You cannot say that having the support of the people or the people support you means something uh,
2: absolute you talk about the majority and people are against you they're not majority when they are majority you don't have to stay in that position
0: so okay first of all first of all i fell asleep second of all <laughs> i wasn't afraid but see but the, see, that that's my other question i mean i like a lot of americans i didn't really pay attention to this until the um until the pressure was building up where Obama's going, you've got to go, you use gas, poisoning gas against your people. And there was a lot of momentum being built up for this to got to go. And I'm watching the news, but I'm not doing any extra reading on the side because, you know, whatever, I'm just checking out the news. And, and I remember at one point I'm like, can he possibly stay? Is he going to resist this this pressure from the United States and from other countries to step down? But now that we've done all this reading, we've done all these shows, I mean, his father was the ruler for 30 years. And even before that, he was a part of the, the power. Um, he brought stability of a kind to this country. His, his, uh, there's a falling out with, um, Hafez's brother, Bashar's own brother dies in a car accident. He was supposed to be in charge. I mean, this guy has got so much. Basil. Emotionally inv- Basil. 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 There we go. Basil. Yes. Bashar has got so much inv- emotionally invested in this position, there's no way he can step down just because of pressure, because of diplomatic political pressure or whatever. And if he does step down, what happens to all the Alawites that he's related to that, that look, look to him for protection or whatever? I mean, it does not become a bloodbath or whatever? So now that we've done all this research, I just, I just see it now clearly. This guy cannot step down because of all of the things that has come before him, no matter what his personality um, is and and
1: it's quite possible that he couldn't even reform Syria even if he wanted to as we'll, uh, yeah. we'll see as we go through because of the the rest of the power structure. you know I think um, a guy like that, particularly who's inherited the power just because he has the right last name. Uh, he's not a strong man like his father was. He he didn't build this thing and run it with an iron fist for 30 years. When he comes in, there's this whole um, shadow government of people that have got empires built up on the, the back of this dictatorship. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bit like when somebody becomes president of the United States. I mean, I don't know about you, but I genuinely believe the president has very limited power over what he or she can and can't do. Because there's this um, like dark government, uh, shadow government, the wealthy, the powerful people that you know, control the media, deep state stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is fairly acknowledged now. This is fairly mainstream views. This is in the realm of conspiracy theory. I'm reading a book on the deep state written by a guy who was a Washington bureaucrat for decades Mm -hmm. uh, under Reagan. I think originally he wrote a book a year or two ago on the deep state and said, yeah, this is really how it works. You've got these, these networks of power uh, that have been built up over decades that aren't elected They're not congressmen or senators. They're the people behind the senators and the congressmen and the presidents, behind their campaigns, people who fund them, the people who have agendas. Um, They're always there. They don't come and go. They fight amongst themselves, but they're always there. And you, you become congressman or woman or you become a senator, you become a president. And you go, well, I'm going to do this big thing, and they go, no, no, you're really no, not. It's no, not good for me. Yeah, no, 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 you're not. Yeah. And they, and, and of course, the the interests of the people in the deep state aren't always aligned. you have, right. they have their own agendas, and they're fighting amongst each other. So there's tug and push and pull going on inside of that. I so I think it's the same, and probably even more so in countries like Syria and and, right. uh, as we'll see, I'll quote from at least one person who has met Assad a bunch of times and says that he thinks Assad did have ambitions to reform Syria when he took the top job, but really his hands were kind of tied yeah
0: hey quick question: What do you call a dictatorship that suddenly becomes a monarchy when you've when one person dies and their son takes over, and things generally are supposed to remain the same? Is there a term for a
1: yeah, you call it... Dictatorships. You call it a monarchy.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. The, the simplest answer is normally mm. the best. Got it. You call Got him...
1: It. He's, he's princeps. He's not emperor. He's just princeps. <laughs> First among equals. Got it. Yeah.
0: There we go. We've
1: seen that before somewhere. I don't, can't remember exactly where that was. <laughs> somewhere. Mm.
0: somewhere. You know, and
1: it reminds me, too, of... Uh, I can't remember where we've been talking. Maybe it was on Martin Darlington's... Waterloo show I did the other day somewhere I've been talking about this. Oh no, I was with a friend over coffee like a weekend or two ago. When Napoleon uh, invaded Russia in 1812, in the lead up to that, like he, what well, people tend not to know unless they've listened to my podcast on Napoleon or read a book, um, the Tsar of Russia at the time, Alexander, he and Napoleon actually had a pretty good relationship. Uh, Alexander was a bit younger than Napoleon. He looked up and admired Napoleon. Um, They were kind of sort of brotherly um, And they had had peace for a number of years But then it started to break down And Alexander was getting forced by his nobility To go Mm -hmm. to war with France again He didn't really want it, as far as we can tell uh, But he was being threatened by his mother and his sister And the rest of the nobility Hey, you do this or you're out of here Uh, And his father, Tsar Paul had been assassinated by the elite in Russia yeah. before him That's how he came to power so yeah. you know they so were like real. you that remember your dad play. do you want to see your dad <laughs> again cuz we can make that happen yeah so anyway we can um, be
0: nature yeah yeah
1: you know this it, it, it's not uncommon for people who are a head of state to be hamstrung to a large degree, whether it's in a dictatorship or democracy or even a monarchy like Russia, to be hamstrung by the deep state or the equivalent of the deep state that you have in your country.
0: Anyway, let's back to Assad. So when he came to power... uh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add something onto the deep state speech that you gave that I agree with. I always thought that one of their most powerful weapons was the access of information to the president. I mean, he's he or she, whatever, is the, they're pretty much trapped in this White House or whatever. And it's not like they can get out and talk to the average person too much. I mean, they're given information by people that are close to them. And if you control the information getting to the president, you pretty much control the president. I just I just thought I always thought that was a part of the deep state a very important part of controlling anybody in power.
1: Yeah. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. yeah. You're uh, Sir Humphrey, Sir Humphrey Appleby. Well, minister, you ever watched that? You watch yes, yes. Minister? Oh my God. Yes. I've just been watching Brilliant. it again on Netflix, like the original season. Uh, yeah. Just stands up so well. Kids the, out there. If you've the never play, if, yeah, if you've never seen yes, minister, uh, Track it down online. Made in the early 80s in England. It's sort of like the, I don't know, Veep. If you're familiar with Veep, which is a brilliant show. The current season of Veep is just as brilliant as always. Or The Thick of It, Uh, Peter Capaldi's old show. It's about uh, a minister in England, like a a government minister, just being absolutely manipulated and controlled. (laughs) It's a comedy. But manipulated and controlled by the bureaucrats around him, right? Um, and you
0: will learn how the British government works. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And well, yeah. and, and pretty much every government, I'm sure it's it's very true. true. Minis-, ministers come and go every few years, but the bureaucrats who work,
0: Permanent at, undersecretary, yeah, yeah,
1: they're there for decades. They know <laughs> where all the skeletons are. They know how to manipulate they know
0: everything. That's right.
1: I saw I saw an episode the other day where. Um, uh, the minister goes to meet with the guy who uh, he replaced who was in the, the the outgoing the previous government right he goes to meet him and he goes like how did you deal with sir humphrey and he, and, and and his uh, predecessor tells him the four steps that sir humphrey will use to to block <laughs> yes. every piece of <laughs> every piece of reform that the minister tries word to push for word. through yeah <laughs> he gives him the playbook uh <laughs> Well, first he'll say it's it's not as easy as it looks. And uh, then he'll say uh, they've tried it before and it failed. And then he'll say, well, we could do it, minister, but it'll require a massive study, which will cost a lot of money. We'll have to hire a lot of people. And that's not going to look good when we're trying to cut budgets and uh, all this kind of right. stuff. Anyway. Brilliant. Back to uh, 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 Bashar. So when Bashar took over, when his father died, the Syrian economy was pretty fucked, um, it had been a quasi-socialist uh, economy for the last 30 years. People remember way back, we talked about the Ba'ath Party ha- sort of had a socialist um, model for how they were trying to lift these Arab states into the 20th century when they took over in the mid-20th century because they were fairly backwards economically. Um in, in, in some socialist countries like Iraq where they had oil that was uh, somewhat easier to do to be able to create a, a fairly burgeoning economy and a good middle class um, Syria unfortunately didn't have a huge amount of oil and their economy was kind of ruined, they were the second poorest country in the Middle East in Ooh. 2000 when Bashar came to power, I think only Yemen had a lower per capita income so he uh, early on in his uh, regime, he sold off some state-run enterprises. He followed uh, a model put forward by the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, encouraged the private sector, encouraged capitalist development, all that kind of stuff that mm-hmm. you know gets pushed by these pro-U.S., pro-capitalist international um, organizations that are you know basically trying to. Create that um, open door policy that we've talked about on the Cold War show, where yeah. countries get opened up so U.S. Uh, interests can get in there and invest and, and take over the infrastructure and all that kind of stuff.
0: And he and, and well, Bashar got look, a lot of praise. The West must have liked that. Sorry. Yeah. The West, the West must have loved that, that he was making these gestures that his father would never even consider before. So how, this, this could be a pretty amazing opportunity for the West to change the game in the Middle East through Syria.
1: Yeah, he got a lot of praise by Western uh, governments, Western media. Early on, they were saying, oh, OK, this guy gets it. He's not his dad. This is going to be a great thing for the world that Bashar is now in power. But, you know, just like in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, similar thing happened during this sort of capitalist um neo-liberation, I guess, of uh, Syria, is a lot of the Assad cronies, the Ba'ath Party cronies, Assad relatives, were able to rig the auctions of all of these state-run enterprises and buy exclusive licenses to a lot of the the main infrastructure in Syria on the cheap or got licenses to it's open new fixed. things yeah so to get like uh, the the license to run the power and the gas uh, the, the phone companies set up cell phone companies all of this kind of stuff it ended up falling into the hands of a relatively small group of elites who ended up becoming insanely wealthy. Uh, they they own the banks, the insurance companies, the airlines, the infrastructure, the telephony companies, Damn. the roads. Rich get richer. Yeah, exactly. Now we've we we saw that happen in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, as I said, and we've been seeing that happen in America as well, um, and all around the world. It happens in democracies. It happens in, well, you know, whatever monarchies or, or, or dictatorships, whatever you want to call Syria. When the mm-hmm. state doesn't run it, uh, it's it, eventually you find out that it, the system gets manipulated, so a handful of wealthy elite end up controlling pretty much everything that matters.
0: And, and if I get enough money through manipulation, I can then influence the state, so I become the state. Well, that's exactly
1: the game, yeah. And that's kind of the basis of this book I've been working on for the last five years, which... Looks like I've nearly finished volume one of it um, You know, just sort of talking about Kind of the mechanics by which that works But you're absolutely right You get enough money You can influence the media Either by buying it like Rupert Murdoch does Or by <coughs> advertising in it And therefore you get a say over The sort of stories that it covers Then, And the way you get a say is Either directly or indirectly I don't know if we've covered this on this show before But I'm sure we've covered it somewhere um, and, and we sort of covered a little bit in the economics episodes of the Cold War show But if you're a major advertiser in a newspaper The threat of withdrawing your advertising Particularly in times like we've had recently where newspapers are struggling and it's, But it's the same right. with television or with radio, any, any mass media you, you have a certain amount of sway over their editorial choices the stories they're mm-hmm. going to cover or not going to cover is somewhat determined by the economics of the business and who the big advertisers are and what's in their interests or not in their interests. Because um, you don't want to cover a story that could lose you a big advertiser. So you, you're going to. You know, be careful about that. Also, a lot of the guys that sit on the boards of the big media companies sit on boards of other businesses and they have interrelated interests. And, of course, they're the ones that are funding the, the election campaigns for politicians, which is a bigger thing in the U.S. than it is here or in England. Because right. your system's yeah. a lot more corrupted and corruptible than it is here. We... As, as I think you've ta- you and I've talked about before, but our federal election, the equivalent to your presidential election in the U.S., your presidential elections take best part of what eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. Here it's a month, three to four weeks in, in from the moment it's announced to the moment Damn. it's finished. It's three to four weeks.
0: Cram it in, get it over with, move on. Yeah. I like that.
1: Yeah. And uh, there, there, are, there are limits on the kind of advertising that you can do and all of that kind of stuff. Not as many as I would like. But, so it's, it's in and out. You don't need to raise a trillion dollars of election finance to, right. to run an election here. You're, you're in and out.
0: Anyway, Doesn't Australia uh, recognize the fact that uh, corporations are people too and they have rights?
1: Uh, not to the degree that you do, no. But they, they do get away with a lot more shit here than I'd like to. Anyway, so back to back to yeah. Syria. So um, yeah. there was economic growth early on. Um, and just after the... Um, well, before we get to the Damascus Spring, I was going to talk about um, during the demonstrations that started with the Arab Spring in 2011... Just as an example of the widespread corruption, um, the demonstrators were complaining about Rami Mahlouf, who was Assad's cousin and the owner mm. of the country's largest cell phone company. They It was claimed that he'd made tens of millions of dollars in that period, that decade after Bashar Damn. came in to when the um, Arab Spring broke out. Um, there's a, uh, I read a report by a guy called Nabil Saman, who's the director of the Center for Research and Documentation in Damascus. He estimates that 300 families controlled Syria's economy. Shit. Um, and he is a quote. He said, "At the end of the re- an end of the regime means their demise." This is the 300 families, right? Not only in terms of political power. People will ask, "Where did he get this money from?" There are many people, big capitalists who made a lot of money. Syria has replaced Arab socialism with crony capitalism. So, mm. as you said before, there's a there's a we can call it a deep state. There's a group of families, relatively small group of people, that have a lot of money tied up in the existing Syrian regime outside of the Assad's mm-hmm. directly themselves, um, who don't want to see that go down. If that goes down uh, and if Assad is replaced by another dictator or even a democratic president who pushes through a a real democracy, etc., etc., it means the end of the power base, the wealth base for the current elite, quite possibly. So they don't want to see that happen. So they're going to use everything in their power, exactly the same as the elite do in the United States. They're gonna use their mm-hmm. control of the media and their control of the you know, the electoral system and their control of consumer capitalism to try and maintain things the way they are. It's not in their interest for there to be any reform sure. of the system, right? It's this this is the way the world works.
0: Should I, just I continue want to be one of the haves and not have nots.
1: Uh, do you? That's your goal in life? That's my
0: I'm pretty shallow. I can't believe you haven't picked up on that by now. Yes, please continue.
1: <laughs> so just after, though, he became president. So he became president in June of 2000, and in July of 2000, something called the Damascus Spring started. Mm-hmm. Now, it started with, um, as I understand it, groups of people meeting in, like, private houses or salons, a bit like the beginning of the, the, the French Revolution. Um People meeting in secret across Damascus, talking about the fact that Hafez was dead um, and and sort of plotting what they were going to do with this opportunity, this massive change of power structure to bring about reforms in yeah. Syria.
0: And to be clear, this even this conversation, this talking, this gathering in people's homes as inane as it may have been, would not have been tolerated under Hafez. But now... Uh, as far as we can tell, Bashar did not do anything, and so the people were encouraged. They they continued to do it, and so eventually um, uh, they were able to put out a statement. They are able to put out a, a concrete list of ideas of what they want. So these people are, are sensing a change. They're hoping there's going to be a change, and they're getting bold in their actions. Mm.
1: Yeah, they obviously thought that man, man, this was the best opportunity they were probably going to have in their lifetime to... Um, yeah make Syria a little bit fairer for the the people. So um, these meetings were going on. They were driven in part by sort of the political opposition, such as there was in Syria. Obviously, it was pretty much a one-state party, so there wasn't a lot of opposition. But there was a Syrian Communist Party. There were certainly members of the Ba'ath Party who also wanted reforms. And there was just a lot of civilians who weren't affiliated Mm -hmm. with any particular particular organization, including uh, the documentary filmmaker Omar Amaralai, who was uh, fairly prominent in this process. He'd made a lot of political documentaries, but declared himself apolitical. He wasn't aligned with any party. So yeah, as Mm -hmm. you said, um, a group of 99 Syrian intellectuals uh, ended up publishing a statement in September of th- 2000. It's known as the Statement of 99 or the Manifesto of the 99. Uh, I don't know why they couldn't find 100. I mean, I think the Statement of 100 would have been better, personally, from a marketing perspective.
0: Um, you know, if, well, define d- define 99 brave men is one thing. Define one more brave man. I, I think you're pushing it. You I think really so?
1: Do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway, so um, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. just a hundred, like one more. Hey, I mean, even if you couldn't find another intellectual, I would have just m- pulled someone in off the street and said, uh, "What's yeah. two plus two? Them, Four, Yes, yeah, you'll up. you'll do. Yeah, you're an intellectual. You're in. Sign you're this. In.
0: That's right."
1: <laughs> anyway, just to get over that, I mean, maybe it's well, maybe it's a bit like when you you price something up at twenty nine ninety nine, you think it's there's a psychological hurdle over you know you're getting over the zero zero to a new dollar, like well. If, if we say we've got 100, Bashar might feel threatened. If we just say it's 99, he goes, well, at least it's not 100. Yeah. So that's not as threatening. Thank God. So anyway, oh, their, their statement um, called for a whole bunch of reforms, including the state of emergency, which had been in existence since 1963, to be lifted, for political prisoners to be pardoned, for exiles to be allowed to return, for legal protection of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, freedom from surveillance, some basic things. They wanted to push through. Yeah, And the first draft of this statement was actually written by that documentary filmmaker I mentioned before, Omar Amarale. Um, and in November 2000, a couple of months after this statement was released, the Bashar government actually said, you know what? Fair enough. We, will, we have listened. Yes. And they released 600 political prisoners. They closed the Metzi prison where military and political prisoners were primarily held. Um, And over the course of the next few months, uh, they also allowed some new newspapers to be created. Um, Some NGOs were allowed to form that were pro-democracy, critical of the Assad regime. These are things that had never been allowed under the state of emergency, under Hafez. Um, But uh, Bashar was making some progress.
0: But even then, I mean, you've got a new, um, young, good-looking, probably charismatic uh, leader. He doesn't seem to be the tyrant that his father is. He's got a wife who's, uh, I'm trying to remember, but she did do a lot of uh, charities for the poor and the the sick and the children of the country. So she, uh, in her own right, is beloved by the people as well. And You've got the Arab Spring, uh, the Damascus Spring that comes along. But getting together in houses and talking, is one thing. Putting petitions together that are pretty much saying we want Syria as we know it to change, we want di- we want different people in power uh, is just going way too far. To get together and talk, one thing, Bashar could pretty much deal with that, but the fact that they want real change, they want new leadership, they want democracy, they want the right to bitch and moan like everybody else, that is just going way too far. That's crossing the line. Bashar cannot have that because he'll it, it, I think he realizes that everything would begin to unravel and he would lose control. And the only reason Syria has been relatively calm for the last 30 years is because Hafez had tight control on everything and he wouldn't allow the beginnings of any type of trouble. And now that seems to be coming undone and his son has to react to that.
1: Yeah, when you say he was good looking. Uh, okay, no, I am pushing it.
0: I'm pushing it. Not good looking. I I was I was just I was weaving a tail. The man has no chin. I don't like his mustache. I'm not crazy about his eyes and his hair is funny. But other than that, he's really good looking. He doesn't, uh, I was just I I was being he, nice.
1: He doesn't have a mustache. He's clean shaven. His father had a mustache. Okay. Bashar oh, reminds me sorry. of sorry. Bashar reminds me of this guy.
2: you never to talk to me like that (laughs) because I can't understand it me me me
1: Yeah, he looks like Beaker from the Muppets.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, in a good so, way.
1: No, not in a good way. No, it's <laughs> no. very weird, very weird looking dude. Anyway, Look. uh, um, yeah. So I think uh, the the as you say, like the 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 powers that be, uh, the the da- deep state, let's call it in Syria. Um, Sort of had enough of this opening up. I guess it must have got to a point where it's starting to started to threaten their ability, or they were concerned that it was a, it was you know heading in that direction was going to threaten their ability to maintain power and control. So either way, um, Assad cracked down um, uh, early in two thousand and one on this uh, push for reform. And uh, whether or not he wanted to or whether or not he was forced to by the rest of the political and military and economic elite in Syria, we don't really know. But the Damascus Spring largely ended in Augustus 2001 when 10 of the leading activists were arrested and imprisoned. They'd been calling for democratic elections and a campaign of civil disobedience until they got them. And uh, they were arrested, thrown in the slammer, and that was that.
0: Okay, so one. I think you said Augustus instead of August, two thousand one. Nope, no, no worries. Shit. So, so, of the ninety nine people, the the ten ten of those were arrested. So again, ninety nine hundred. It doesn't matter. But yeah. So um, again. We're going to find out later on. I don't know if it's going to be in this episode, but the decision-making circle around Bashir is very, very small. Bashar. Uh, like you said, he, Bashar. Shit, sorry. Bashar. And like you said earlier, I mean, it's not like he's a military guy. He hasn't been doing this for decades like his father. Is he insecure? Is he nervous? Is he going to react? We don't know. And so, so... There could be someone saying, you've got to shut this down. And, and, you know, he's a very relatively young man, 35 years old. But the point is, someone decides it's getting too much. He begins to shut it down. People are getting locked up. And, of course, they've had this taste of freedom. They've had this hope. They've had this dream. They see other countries in the Middle East with their various springs. The people have got to be crushed. They've got to be disappointed. But at the same time, they've got to be very angry.
1: Yeah, uh, so here's how David Leech, who is a professor of Middle East history at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, uh, who's written a number of books on Syria and who's met Bashar on a number of occasions, describes Ooh. him.
2: I got to know Bashar uh, pretty well. Uh, I never saw him while I was meeting with him, as like a Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi, and I know people who have met all three, and Bashar was just different. He was normal, you know, relatively normal type of guy. Uh, and therefore, it led many people, again, including myself, that he hoped that he would incrementally change the system. But somewhere along the road, he lost his way. The arrogance of authoritarianism will do that. Power is an aphrodisiac. Either he convinced himself or was convinced by sycophants that the well-being of the country was synonymous with his well-being. And that what he was doing in terms of violently putting down the protest and not meeting, not meeting the demands for change were both necessary and correct. This is very typical with authoritarian leaders and authoritarian systems. An alternate reality is orchestrated around them. And they just don't see the real world the way that many others see the real world. And if you hear this, this stuff on a daily basis, that you're a savior and a prophet, you're only human, you begin to believe it. And I believe he developed a strong feeling of triumphalism uh, midway through his uh, time in power, particularly after he survived what he felt the, you know, the worst the Bush administration had to, to offer. Uh, he survived, uh, you know, again, the U.S.-led invasion of, of Iraq, which they opposed. He survived the, the post Haredi uh, uh, assassination uh, atmosphere and actually emerged uh, in a fairly good position and, and, and on the verge of reintegrating into the regional interna- international diplomatic scene. So I think what he is what he believes he is doing and the others around him is not only surviving, but they're saving the country. That's what they and, and it's again, it's a totally different mindset and a, a different uh view of the nature uh, of threat.
1: Yeah, so that's one perspective on what on what happened to him that he just sort of went power mad. But as as Leach says, um they they probably believe, or, or to some degree, at least Bashar probably does to some degree, that he is saving the country. Now, you know, it's important to keep in mind, I think, that there have been genuinely sort of dangerous sectarian and political uh, forces at play in Syria for decades. As we've seen, we've talked about the rising up and the rebellions of the Muslim Brotherhood and various Sunni rebellion forces um, and you know there's a question there as to well are they just trying to get more freedoms for their people or are they trying to take over the state and implement some sort of Sunni controlled power base um, you know it's difficult to really know of course what their true agendas are but um, there is one. There's a lot of different ways of looking at this, I guess, is, which is true mm-hmm. for most things. A lot of different perspectives. On one hand, uh, if you are a believer uh, in stability, secu- the secular state, which is what the Baath Party was all about, certainly what Hafez had tried to do for 30 years, they want. They believe the best thing for Syria was a secular state, not a religious theocracy. Um, where there was freedom for religious, all religions, including the religious minorities, they had obviously they had a Christian population, they had an Alawite population, etc. As we've talked about, um, to try and maintain those freedoms, maintain uh, uh, stability, maintain and uh, uh, maintain a, a country that could could live up to the the vision of the sort of pan Arabic state that they had been dreaming about the bath party since it was created in the 40s and if they needed to rule with an iron fist in order to do that then that's what needed to be done that's one way of looking at it i i guess that's Mm -hmm. probably the way they look at it at least some of them but i think also there's a way of looking at it which is they're protecting their own asses and their own little empires that they've built up whether you're an assad or you're one of the 300 elite families Mm -hmm. um so but it's it was a Complex situation is a boiling pot well before the Arab Spring happened in 2011, which we're getting to.
0: If I can, uh, I was reading one book and they were saying, this person's, uh, this is a professor, they were saying that their theory is uh, that the United States or the West in general missed a very decent opportunity After Hafez uh, died, as we were saying earlier, you know, the sun comes along. He doesn't seem to be made of the same kind of stuff. He listens to the West as far as certain monetary policies. Uh, And here's a chance maybe for the United States, uh, for the Western powers in general, to come in to support him, to start a dialogue and say, hey, if you are an agent of change, we are here for you, not just so we can get into your markets and that kind of stuff, but we want to support you because... Um, as far, even as far as the, um, for whatever you want to call it, this phase of the Cold War, Russia needs Syria because that is the really their main ally in the Middle East. It's also their access to the Mediterranean Sea. If the United States can get a toe into Syria, start to push the Russian influence out, this could be huge. This obviously it would take time. This could be a game changer, but, um, there are going to be other events that come up that overshadow this, but, you would think that someone from the United States would have said, um, look, we, we know that you can't be um, a full democracy like we are, but if you start going in the right direction, we will help you. We will find you investment. We will support you. We will do everything we can. Um, and you're going to have to tell your people, look, I'm not going anywhere. I am still going to rule, but I certainly don't have to be like my father. So in and, and this person's... Um, Opinion. It was an opportunity that was missed. But as we're about to see, much larger events were about to take place that pretty much ruined any chance the West had of working its way into Syria, whether they were being sincere or not.
1: Yeah, of course, in the middle of 2000, when Hafez died and Bashar became president, the U.S. was going through a presidential election. Which happened mm-hmm. in November of two thousand, so they were in the last few months of that. Um, and then you had the outgoing Clinton administration and the, um, or, or as I like to n- call it, the uh, the blowjob administration, and the <laughs> incoming Bush administration, which you know took office in January of two thousand and one. Um when he cracks down, when Bashar cracks down on the Damascus mass can't fucking talk, Damascus Spring, August 2001, uh, obviously within a few months, 9/11 happens. Um, up until that point, I think the Bush administration was determined to do as little as possible. Um, Bush had mostly just been on his farm. For the first year yeah. of his presidency, With his
0: chainsaw, yeah, cutting down logs. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm a man, I'm a man.
1: And he was just letting Cheney and Rumsfeld continue what uh, Clinton had started, just dismantling the U.S. economy and, and passing it out to their <laughs> version of the uh, Assad uh, family cameras. and cousins. Yeah, yeah, um. <laughs> Yeah, you know, just basically yeah. dismantling regulations like um, Clinton had done with Glass Steagall. Just dismantling, going, yeah. oh regulation, yeah. regulation, we oversight. Don't, we <laughs> don't need that.
0: Yeah, we
1: we trust yeah. our capitalists to do the right thing because they're good Christians.
0: Right. <laughs> well, here's here's my thing. Bush after September after nine eleven, Bush is pretty much his attitude, and he does say this. There's an actual quote I saw it on YouTube. He's like, "You're either with us." or you're against us. And the only reason he got that quote right was because it was really, really short. But that same mentality that Trump has, oh, we're having trouble with immigration, we just build a giant wall. So it was this simplistic view. Um, And that's just not how life is. That's not how it is between governments or whatever. But Bush was pretty much, you're either with us or against us. And if there's any doubt, you're against us, and we're going to label you as an enemy. And that's pretty much what happens early on with Syria. So who knows really how much of an opportunity there was, but there was something. But after, after 9-11, it is shut down because America, because we got blinders on, we're afraid, we're angry, we want revenge. And we're about to go to all John Wayne. And there's no time for gray areas when you're in your John Wayne mode.
2: Either you're with us, either you love freedom
0: and with nations which embrace freedom, or you're with the enemy. There's no in-between. There you go. Um, so he almost blew it. He almost messed up the saint. Okay, go ahead.
1: By the way, um, <clears throat> biblical quote. That's where he got that from.
0: Mm. Uh, did not know that.
1: Uh, well, it goes back to the book of Joshua. It happened when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood in front of him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? But then where Bush probably gets it from is uh, the um, New Testament. Matthew 1230 says, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The way it's put in Luke and Mark, Gospels according to Luke and Mark, is whoever is not against
0: us is for us. So basically what Bush should have said was uh, uh, either you gather with us or you scatter from us. There's no in-between. Something
1: like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, so after 9-11 happens, um, Syria is officially declared as one of the nations that is in the axis of evil.
0: Oh, so they're promoted. (laughs)
1: Now... Remember that in like 10 years before that, more or less, during the first Gulf War, when Hafez was still alive, they supported mm-hmm. the US invasion of Iraq. Right. But this time, Bashar doesn't support it. Ah. He does not su- the, support the, yeah. the upcoming invasion of Iraq after 9-11. This is probably one of the reasons why he's uh why why the country is put on the axis of evil list
0: and there's there's one more reason um i was uh reading that uh, a lot of people were traveling through syria they know the americans are going uh, where they're going so there's a lot of people traveling to iraq to fight the americans and they're traveling through syria and uh bashar either can't or won 't and it's probably a combination of both stop this traffic going through, and that gets back to bush and so that 's one of the other reasons they were added to the list but uh, they they were Syria and Bashar were being seen as helping because they weren't stopping all these people going to where the americans were going to be how you stop people from traveling over this ginormous desert area is beyond me but because they didn't try as hard as the americans wanted them to they get labeled as a conspirator with the bad guys
1: yeah but as we will see in the next episode the you even before 9-11 the u.s had had a plan to uh to Regime change in Syria Bring about regime change in Syria As they wanted to do in Iraq and Iran And a number of other countries Um, And we'll get to that in the next episode Also, we'll get to the next episode We'll talk about the fact that just The the fact that they were part of the axis of evil Didn't necessarily mean They weren't useful During this uh, uh, Iraq invasion If you need someone tortured The US knew where to send them Uh, And we'll talk about how the U.S. used Syria as a uh, torture uh, black... For torture, black sites. But that, my friend, will be in the next episode because we're uh, kind of coming up to an hour and I want to do a review. Hey. Make a note where we're up to first in my notes... Um, yeah we got a re- got a review here uh, from where from uh, Senator know nothing uh, from the United States. Um, Senator know nothing calls us uh, secret Trump admirers. These two secret Trump admirers. Have hit it out of the park with their latest offering, the BS filter. Their smart banter, insightful knowledge, and well-researched info is much better than what we get from or from or fake. No, from, no, okay, okay. much better than we get from fake news outlets. I think there's a typo in there. What is amazing to me is how they can provide such in-depth knowledge while doing so many different podcasts at the same time, still holding jobs, and occasionally pleasuring either their wives or each other. Not only, did they give, not only do they give in-depth info but, info but jazz it up with all sorts of banner and occasionally some rock music I'm still waiting to hear about ISIS and their use of goats Ray should be able to speak about that from a Virginian point of view good on you guys thank you Senator Know Nothing send us an email send thank me an you. email uh, to my email address if you can work out what that is and with your address and <laughs> we'll send you a thank you message um And I wanted to go out with uh, the other song that Bashar likes to play. This is, you know, before I played Don't Bring Me Down by Yellow, that's what he played in the morning to get himself in the mood. This is what he would play at night when he went to bed.
0: walk away from me when all I
1: can do is watch you leave cause we shed so the laughter and the pain we even shed the tears while we were torturing you you're the only one who really
0: knew me at all so take a look at me now there's just an empty space There's nothing left here to remind me. Just a memory of your face. Take a look at me now. I'm about to
2: return. There's
0: just an empty space. And you come back to me. It's against the odds. That's why Air drums. I was I just make you turn around. Turn, turn around and see me, see me cry. There's so much I need to say to you. Found so, so many, many reasons
1: <laughs> why. You're the only one. So, of course, when he wrote that song, what Bashar was right. talking about was uh, the, the Syrian people. Look at me. Mm. You don't love me anymore. I'm just an empty space. You know, all I have is that memory of when we all loved each other those first few months of my presidency, and you right. coming back to me and supporting me. Now is against all odds, but that's what I've got to face. Like I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out there bravely and try and win back your love, right? Because and, yeah, I fucking love you. It might be against all odds, but I love you.
0: And if it doesn't work, I'll shoot you in the face.
1: <laughs> Little known fact: he wrote that song.
0: In the tub. Uh,
1: during the syrian civil war then went back in time to 1986 <laughs> Tardis. and gave it to phil collins who recorded it and made a big hit bit bit yeah bit dr hooey there but uh that's, that's trust history me,
0: people that's what happened yeah facts Bullshit, this is bullshit.